There's a new podcast we'd like to recommend from NARAL Pro-Choice America called The Lie That Binds. This November, abortion access is on the line like never before. But we can fight back with NARAL President Elise Hoag, Stacey Abrams, Loretta Ross, and so many more. This series helps listeners make sense of how we got here and how we get out of this mess. You don't want to miss this one. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, things don't always go your way. That's that's life. The thing with politics is when they when they don't go your way in politics, it's very public. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. And that's Jennifer Horn, the former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, who these days can be found working with the Lincoln Project, the group of anti-Trump conservatives supporting Joe Biden and waging a high-profile battle to get more Republicans to abandon the president. And I made a promise to myself that I would never say or do anything that I could not defend to my kids over dinner. And there's no world where I can defend who Donald Trump is or what he has done to our country. We talked about the 2020 campaign and what she's learned over the years as a Republican woman and former candidate herself. In 2008, Jennifer ran for Congress and faced any number of people who told her she should be waiting her turn. She knows how hard it can be to break into the political world and the sexism, both subtle and overt, that women can face along the way. It's it's what party politics brings out, like the idea of it's someone's turn. But if that's the case, if that's your excuse for it, when is it a woman's turn? When is it my turn? And now, here's my conversation with Jennifer Horn. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. You are a longtime Republican operative uh, out of New Hampshire and more recently became a co-founder of The Lincoln Project. For any of our listeners who don't know what The Lincoln Project is, I assume most of them do, but some might not. Can you give us the kind of 30-second backgrounder? Sure, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. Uh, I, I'm really proud of the work that we're doing at the Lincoln Project. The, the Lincoln Project is a group of current and former Republicans who recognize that Donald Trump poses an existential threat to the future of the republic, and we are committed to defeating Trump and Trumpism at the ballot box. And what that means is when Election Day rolls around in November, we will have spent our year trying to educate voters, not just on the record and and danger of Donald Trump, but those in the U.S. Senate who have made it possible, unfortunately, through their enabling of him, for him to be as widely destructive as he has. That is a, a strong mission. And as a longtime Republican, I'd just love to get a sense of how you got to where you are on this. And then if sure. you were ever worried about kind of blowback and associating with a group that's kind of in, trying to impact the, the president negatively and, and make sure that he right. doesn't get reelected. Right. Well, with this particular president and, and his, you know, operation, if all you get is a little bit of blowback, you're, you know, you're doing good. That's, <laughs> you know, I've been a Republican my whole life. I'm still a Republican. In um, 2008, I was the nominee for the second district in New Hampshire. I was, you know, considered by the party and all of my supporters as a, a, a real conservative. They were happy to have a conservative voice like mine in, in the party. I became chairman and served for two terms from 2013 to 2017. And through all of that, 
my commitment, while I am a Republican and have uh, done my best to be an honorable leader in our party, my commitment has always been to the principles and the values that I thought were behind what we did as Republicans. When I first decided to get involved in politics and run for office, my husband and I had a conversation about it and I, and I made a promise to myself that I would never say or do anything that I could not defend to my kids over dinner. And there's no world where I can defend who Donald Trump is or what he has done to our country. And I, I spoke up against him in the primary, even though I was chairman, and I understandably got, you know, that created some controversy, got some blowback at that time. But I always felt like I was in this position with him where I had to choose, was I going to defend this candidate who's calling himself a Republican, or was I going to defend the principles and the values of our party? I've always tried to choose to vet, to defend the principles and the values first. You know, this is a podcast largely geared towards women. And I think mm-hmm. just generally often, you know, it's, it's hard to take the positions you've taken, knowing that you're going to face blowback. I mean, kind of at best, as you kind of even mentioned, or really take on direct fire from the president. Right. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach that or how you you know, kind of decided that, you know, you can take some arrows, but you're going to still keep going? Well, you know what? I think that for me, before I ever got involved in politics, I I used to work for the largest insurance company in the country. I've worked in media. I've been a columnist. I've done radio. I've worked with, you know, a nonprofit organization where we go, we went to Eastern Europe to deliver um, humanitarian aid, you know, all these things that we do in our lives, they, they all kind of get sewn together over the years. And I have always tried to be conscious of why I do things. And it's because I think that the best thing that we can do for our children is to focus our efforts in making the world a better place for when they raise their children. Across the arc of my adult life, that has truly been a conscious motivation for me. And it and my political engagement's been no different. So if you believe that what you're doing is truly about making a better world for the next generation, then you stand up for it and you do it and you take what comes as, as a result of that. And I think that the vast majority of Americans, frankly, would agree with me that they are motivated by the same type of inspiration for their families. And I just think that when you use that filter, when you look at it from that perspective, everything sort of falls in place and makes sense for you. I want to talk more about New Hampshire and the 2020 race. But before we get there, uh, let's take a step back. Tell us, where did you grow up? Kind of what did your parents do? What's your background? Sure. Well, I come from a very non-political family. Um, I grew up in upstate New York. I'm one of 10 children. And that was, you know, I have to say that that was a very formative experience for me in the way that I see the world and the way that I try to conduct myself now, certainly. My parents were not political, but they were very engaged in supporting efforts in the community. And their focus with us was always just about integrity and honor. You know, it wasn't ever telling us what to be or how to be it. Just be, just be, bring integrity to it. Be a good person. My dad was always really focused on integrity and truth. Honesty was, was like a really big, um, an important um, guiding kind of value for him. And, and my mom just, um, you know, my mom was actually, you know, I didn't appreciate this as a kid because um, my, with my mom was a stay at home mom for 10 kids. But before that uh, she, my mother got a master's degree at a time when most women were not going to college. So she was, you know, she was really smart and a trailblazer and just 
very independent in the, her thinking as well. And those kinds of things just subconsciously influence you as you're growing up. So you said parents like, you know, not very, very like super politically active, but obviously sound like they're engaged in their community. How did you get the political bug? I don't know. I don't know. How to, I don't know where it came from. I decided to run for for office when I before I that was the first political thing I did. I was um, I had been doing a daily talk radio show that was across the southern tier of New Hampshire and and kind of bled into the the you know Massachusetts side of the line there for several years, interviewing folks from the political world um, and tracking and paying attention and being aware of everything that was happening. And at that time, frankly, um, the, it was the Republicans lost the house in the midterms, um, in under George W. Bush, the, in his second term. And he, um, and so going into in 2006. And so watching what I saw at that time as being a dramatic shift to the left with what was coming out of Washington, I thought I'll, you know, I'm going to, we, we needed a good, strong person to run for that seat. It wasn't a, it wasn't an easy seat for Republicans. It was going to be a tough year, but I decided that um, it was something that I felt strongly about. And I ended up in a primary with three men, um, all of whom felt that they uh, were somehow the, the chosen one, the next one whose turn it was to get it. Uh, and, and were offended by this idea of this house, what, what they perceived me as being as you know, like a housewife from Nashua, who does she think she is? Um, and so it was a really engaging primary. And, um, and, and I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed the, the opportunity to, to meet so many great people and, um, and to try to be a voice for things that I thought were good and right for the state. And it just sort of carried me along from there. Because you ran in 2008 and, and 2010 as well, right. right? Yep. I was the nominee in eight. Um, Charlie Bass, who's a great guy, had that held that seat for about 12 for 12 years and um, lost in six. I ran in eight and then Charlie decided to come back and run in 10. And so we ended up in a primary together and Charlie won in the end. You know, it was um, not as close as I would have liked it to be, but it was close enough for my pride. It was, again, a very positive experience. And I was happy to move on from there, frankly, and support Charlie in the general election. He won and in 10. And then again, we come back to the presidential cycle in 12 and, and we lost that seat and, and the Republicans haven't won it back since. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned from that setback? I mean, it sounds like you have a very good perspective now, but in the heat of things, it's always hard to lose, particularly right. a campaign. It, you know, it was, it was harder, frankly, for my kids. I really felt for my children. They were teenagers at the time, most of them. And, um, and they just never occurred to them that I would not win. I really did feel badly that I put them in a position where they felt this pain for me, you know, because they because they're young. The most instructive part of it for me was afterward, imme- knowing immediately that of course I would support Charlie in the general election, and in politics you just do because you want you know you want your party to win. I made the conscious decision as soon as it was you know I, it was clear that I was not going to win that I was going to do it as gracefully as possible. That no matter how I felt. Because um, you know, of course I was disappointed. Of course I was hurt. Of course I, you know, it was it was not the outcome that I wanted. That I would conduct myself in a way that, again, my children could learn from. My my supporters could be proud of how I conducted myself. And and those are, that's probably the biggest lesson from it is just, of course, things don't always go your way. That's that's life. The thing with politics is when it when they don't go your way in politics, it's very public. 
you know, so you have, you have to be able to carry that. And, 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 and my, for me, by consciously choosing grace over bitterness or, or whatever it might've been that gets you through. And a couple months later, it, you're like, okay, that, it, that's how it went. That's what, 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 what am I going to do next? You know, what, how, how do we want to move on from here? We'll be right back after this quick break. This November, abortion access is on the line like never before. But we can fight back, and NARAL Pro-Choice America is leading the charge with their new podcast, The Lie That Binds, with a deep dive into the history of how the radical right weaponized abortion to hijack our democracy. The series helps listeners make sense of how we got here and how we get out of this mess. The Lie That Binds unpacks the terrifying rise of the anti-choice movement from its roots in school segregation to the election of President Donald Trump. It features NARAL Pro-Choice America President Elise Hoag, along with leaders, activists, and experts like Stacey Abrams, Loretta Ross, Wendy Davis, Imani Gandhi, and so many more. Don't miss this one. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. I've been a part of Women Rule for over eight years and have really studied kind of women, women getting elected. The Republican Party has done such a poor job in recruiting women, in pushing women forward for positions. Why do you think that is? And are you hopeful that it could change? Well, I'm always hopeful. I am always hopeful. And I will say that I spent a lot of years kind of trying to defend the party. And and, because this is a question, obviously, you get asked from day one. And and the thing is, you can't deny it. You can't. It's a it's a numbers question, if nothing else. You know, how many women are are serving in Congress from the Republican Party today? How many women get elected? And and certainly we see more women in New England get elected, maybe than other parts of the country, but not more Republican women. It's a really hard question to answer because I don't I don't know for sure why this is. I can say that I have certainly directly confronted the sexism of some of the people in our party more than once. There, when I ran in uh, the first time through, when I ran in 2008, Salem is a really important town in the second district if you're a Republican candidate. And I was at a forum there where all, all four of us had spoken and people were kind of you know, gathering afterward in little groups and talking and, inter- and mingling with, with people who had been in the audience. And a, um, a Republican state representative came up to me who was, I knew, was supporting a different candidate in the primary. I, I, that's, I don't care. That's great. And I started with very pleasant, um, you know, just greeting him. And he immediately, like, he, it was just, it was the most shocking thing I've ever experienced. So I, I will never forget it. He, like, took my, my wrist, sort of, like, reached out to me. And he said, um, this is Bob Clegg's race you go home and do something in your neighborhood where you belong. Uh, and I just, I'm like, oh, well, it's good to see you. <laughs> you know, thanks. Uh, it's, you know, but, but I started to see more and more of that as I went along. And, and to some degree, it's, it's what party politics brings out, like the idea of it's someone's turn. But if that's the case, if that's your excuse for it, when is it a woman's turn? When is it my turn? If, and, and what is it that, you know, what is it that determines for you whose turn it is? You know, what is the, so um, there, there was a, there was a, we dismiss the experience and the um, knowledge and the unique contributions that women make in politics 
too easily in our party. And I don't want to say, I don't want to paint a broad brush and say that that's everybody or every, every, every circumstance, but you can't deny it. If you, when you look at, again, it's the numbers. One of the things that we have found in, in conversations and anecdotally, but I think in general is the fundraising is also a really big hurdle, yep, right? Absolutely. First of all, the first problem is most women have to be asked three times before they're going to run. Right. Very few times are they saying, I'm the person, it's why am I not qualified right. instead of why I am qualified. But the fundraising angle is also a real kind of hurdle. How did you approach that? I mean, asking people for money is uncomfortable and a lot of women just don't like to do it, Republican or Democrat. Right. And that is just one of those kind of instinctive differences sometimes. Um, I was not a powerful fundraiser. It is uncomfortable, but it just became one of those things that every time that I overcame my discomfort with it and was successful, not only did it make it easier the next time, but I just kind of like, I took it as a personal, a personal success and like, and it, and it really built my confidence in other ways and other areas as well. It is a shame that politics is as much of a financial game as it is. Things in life cost money, you know, operations cost money, staff cost money. That is one of those things where I feel like to some degree, we, if we want to talk about us as women, how are we going to empower ourselves? Then one of the things is that we do have to be able to look at ourselves and say, okay, this is something that statistically we, we see women are not as comfortable with. But if I want to play in this field, I got to do it. If this is the arena that I want to, that I want to play in, then I have to accept that that's, that that's, part of the, that's part of the game and I've got, to get good, I've got to become good at it. I was much better at it by the time I became chairman. Um, you know, my four, over my four years as chairman, I raised more money than any previous New Hampshire chairman had, Republican chairman had raised, um, which unfortunately was not a, an enormously high bar. But, but it's, it's, you know, it, it's one of those things where I can say, I can look at my four years, four years as chairman and say the numbers speak for themselves. I raised more money. Um, I won back our majority in the state house. I increased our majority in the state house. And I helped lead the effort that led to the first Republican governor in 14 years. So when the, when the people, you know, the Trump folks or other people who've decided that, you know, they just, you know, they, they don't want to be Jennifer Horn's friend in politics, like they want to go, oh, she destroyed the party. She left us in ruins. She looked at this, you know, Trump didn't win New Hampshire. I, I just, it's an, I, one other, like another, another one of those circumstances where I say my record speaks for itself. I don't have to engage with you. I don't have to engage with people who are angry and nasty and, uh, you know, their purpose is to somehow undermine me. I can choose not to be part of that conversation. I do what I believe is right. I work hard. I've been successful. I feel like my record speaks for itself. So obviously you just kind of rattled off a lot of the successes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you did no in a good way. No, it's good. Women need to need to be more forceful in where their success. But but you alluded earlier to the the kind of drama and tumultuousness yeah. that also, you know, happened during your your term. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that and, you know, kind of how, what you walked away with after that experience? Well, I mean, the, the, the most, the, the tumultuousness, I suppose, really was obviously under, in the 16 cycle under when Trump got involved. And, um, and people will recall right out of the gate, everybody talks about him coming down the escalator and, and, you know, launching this hateful tirade against, um, you know, people from Mexico and, and I don't know where else. And, and, um, and, and the thing is, the problem with that cycle is that everyone was convinced that he was going to burn out, 
that he would implode or flame out in some way, that this can't last, people won't really vote for him. And I just couldn't believe that my state would pick him, that these people that I knew so well and respected so much, uh, you know, would pick him. And I, and, and I, I was never able, to this day, frankly, to some degree, I have been unable to understand that action, that perspective. Um, I do, I do have respect for the fact that um, I, I mean, I, I understand that there are people who suffer economically, people who have been left out, and people who have been left behind, and those are real issues that we, as Republicans, need to address more effectively than we have in recent decades. The blowback during Trump's campaign was certainly the greatest that I have ever experienced in anything else. And it started right at the beginning. I mean, I think the earliest that I said something on the record was when he the first time he attacked John McCain. You know, he likes war heroes who weren't captured. And, and, and I spoke, you know, right up until, you know, the tape with the bus. And, and in New Hampshire, some of the folks on his team in New Hampshire who knew me would call me every now and then and, and give me hell. Um, I can remember, I think it was the bus. Was it the bus or something? There was something. When that came out and I was driving to something, you know, some on the other side of the state, and I got a call from a guy um, who I really respected and had been close to and had helped me with other, you know, we had been on the same side with other efforts in our state. And um, he said, you know, I, I was talking to your office and they said, you're going to say something about this. You, you real, I, I don't know why you need to say something about this. You know, we're working, we're working together finally in your office and my office. You, know, you, don't, you shouldn't say anything. And I said, of course, I'm going to say something. Like, did you, did you hear the tape? Did you? Um, and I said to him, then I said, I got to say something or my kids are, are never going to be able to respect me. And his response was, oh, your kids, really? Is that where we're going to go with this? And it was, and it just like, for me, like at that moment, I, I was just like, okay, you're not the same person I used to know. And I can't worry about if people who are all in for Trump, like what I say, like that, that is not you know, that's, that's not the audience that I have to worry about, uh, you know, so, and I think, I think that's something that women struggle with, frankly, as well. Um, and, and not that, oh, we just want to be loved all the time, but that we are more sensitive to some of the relationships that we have. And we do value the, like the, the length of a relationship and think, okay, I don't want to ruin this after working together for so long. Um, and then sometimes we just need to know what our line is and be willing to draw it and say, that's it. I, I'm not, that's it. Well, let's fast forward a little bit to present day. The president uh, has, has, they're dropping a bunch of money in New Hampshire. Um, do you think, is that just putting good money after bad? I mean, does he have any shot there? What's well, frankly, no, I, I don't think that he does have a, a real shot in New Hampshire. I think we see that um, um, in the numbers, but I think, I think like everything else that this president does, that his investment in New Hampshire is driven by ego. Um, Corey Lewandowski is from New, New Hampshire. Corey and I have, again, been on the same side in you know years past on you know certain things. And um, I think Corey promised the president that he was going to win New Hampshire in 2016, and they made a big deal about it. And um, he didn't. He lost, and it was a it was a fairly close loss. I think 2,000 votes or something like that. And I think I, I think two things. I think one that his ego 
because he's mentioned New Hampshire since then. You know, if you recall, um, he's convinced that he lost New Hampshire because thousands of people from Massachusetts got on buses, came across the state line, and voted against him on election day, which is ludicrous. It's 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 just it it's it's it borders on QAnon kind of ludicrous. So I think that's part of it. But I also think, frankly, that he's investing a lot of money in New Hampshire because they are looking at the electoral map as closely as we are at the Lincoln Project. And they are seeing that um, there are states that they thought they were going to win that they very well could lose. And so they're trying to piece together 270 somewhere, somehow. And I I don't think they're going to get it in New Hampshire for sure. Let's talk about the Democratic convention. A lot of Republicans have presence there. Do you think that that's effective? Do you are you urging or hoping more Republicans like yourself will go public with kind of making it maybe more acceptable to vote right. against this president? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very effective, frankly, because think about what a convention a convention is generally when you are rallying your base and unifying all the different pieces of your party who got divided in a primary and sending them out to you know, wage war in, a, in the general election. So um, the fact that the Democrats have given the amount of time that they have to reaching out to uh, Republicans and, and kind of right-leaning independents, um, I think is smart. I think it shows strength and I think it was necessary and I, it encourages me because it lets me know that they see the numbers the same way we do. That they, you know, because we look at it and say we need three to four percent of Republican voters to vote for Joe Biden. And that's a significant effort, you know, especially when you're running against an incumbent Republican. So I, I have so far been um, very impressed with the Democratic convention. And I'm sure it's not a surprise to you that I haven't ever been before, you know, <laughs> but but I like how they did it as well. It's not just that they're reaching out to us, but, you know, those first couple of nights, uh, you know, the um, Republican women, you know, Sue Malinari and Governor Christy Todd Whitman and Meg Whitman and, um, uh, and, and Governor Kasich did, a, I thought, a, a really terrific job. But what I think has been most effective are those series of just average American Republicans talking to the camera on their cell phone about why they were Republican and why they can't vote for Donald Trump. I think that's really effective. And we're trying to do a lot of that kind of outreach through the Lincoln Project as well. We are quickly running out of time, but I have two last things I want to ask you about. We have about 75 days or so until the election. You talk a little bit about what you're going to be focused on from here until election day. Sure. We want people to get to know Joe. We want Republicans in that 4% that we're, you know, that we need to move to get to know Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. By the way, um, Kamala Harris, an extra, a, a genuinely historic moment, you know, that, that I think women, suburban women, Republican women, young women, any that Pete can really feel good about and really be excited about. We want them to get to know these people and, and to recognize that their decency and their dignity and their steady leadership and their commitment to bringing our country back together again are the most important things in this race. That Donald Trump genuinely poses a threat to the future of American democracy as we know it. And um, that it's something that we must come together as, as Americans. And, and the other thing just quickly is, uh, you know, I, I beg my fellow Republicans to look at this and, 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 you know, through the lens that I look at it through and understand that you don't have to put your name on a list. You don't have to put a sign in your front yard, just between you, the ballot box and God. 
you know, do the right thing. You can spend the rest of your life lying about who you voted for if you want to. But, you know, we need you to put America first on this day. And last question, what's the Lincoln Project after this election, right? I mean, you, you're very focused on Trump and uh, other Republicans taking out, you know, not supporting other Republicans who've helped his agenda. But does it continue? Does it have a life beyond sure. Well, we are 100% focused on election day 2020. So there are no plans for, you know, what we will be and how that will unfold. But anything that continues forward from the Lincoln Project will be focused on making sure that the message is heard across the land, that Trumpism is rejected by America fully, permanently, you know, never again do we want any and do we want any candidate to believe from any party that they can run a Trump campaign and win, that they that they want to be the Trump guy, the Trump voice, the Trump candidate? Um, you know, so our, our commitment, regardless of, of how what it looks like after that, this is to make sure that nobody ever looks back at this moment in history and says, hey, maybe let's we should try that again. All right. Well, Jennifer, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. This has really been enjoyable. I appreciate it. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Irina Gucci is the executive producer of Politico Audio. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. It's the best way for people to find us. And please share our episodes on social media. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866.